The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 180. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Brave hearty. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 11th Doctor story, The Beast Below. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom, and welcome to the first of two beginning of a relationship time travel <laughs> space whale episodes we're talking about today. That's right. <laughs> we'll be talking... We're also going to be recording an episode from uh, Star Trek Discovery that also features a space whale, uh, but you won't be and, hearing that one for and this time, week. And time travel and at time the travel. beginning of a relationship. <laughs> it's very <laughs> very weird how these things coincided, but uh, yes, that's, it's very interesting. And also, Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going? Very good. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, folks, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in, Spotify, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or on the SQPN YouTube channel where you should always, always hit the bell to get notifications. Before we get into today's episode, there's a little bit of uh, uh, Doctor Who news. I almost said Star Trek. <laughs> Doctor Who news uh, that came up, which is uh, an article that was in the Radio Times, Jimmy, where Stephen Moffat, and you, you brought this to our attention, Stephen Moffat reveals that there's a secret future doctor hidden in one of his old episodes yeah uh, what is that about well so people will remember silence in the library and forest of the dead which is the first river song story where river dies and it also has the vast and the shadows that eat you it's the hey who turned out the lights one and <laughs> right. during threaded throughout those two episodes we get these images or scenes of a little girl who seems to be watching the story unfolding on television from a much more pleasant reality. And her father is there, as is her apparent therapist, who's a guy named Dr. Moon. And then later, Donna gets taken into the little girl's world, virtual world, and she meets Dr. Moon, who kind of escorts her around. And he's a very kind guy. And then at the end, after River dies, she gets taken into the world and meets Dr. Moon. And in the story, Dr. Moon is explicitly explained as a moon that orbits the planet library, which is also like the virus checker for the database. And so he cares for everything going on in this virtual world. And so he's kind of a doctor as a virus checker. But... In a, an online dialogue between Russell T. Davies and Stephen Moffat, and this episode, pair of episodes, came out in Russell T. Davies' time, Russell T. Davies reminded Stephen Moffat of the fact that he had planned for Dr. Moon 
to be a data ghost of the doctor. Right. And so the idea was Dr. Moon, the image of Dr. Moon and the personality of Dr. Moon is a future incarnation of the doctor, maybe like the 45th incarnation and the doctor's final incarnation. And he like died in River Song's arms and on some battlefield and she saved a data ghost of him and put him into the virtual world in, uh, in, in the moon of the library. And so what we actually have here is everything coming full circle, where now River Song's data ghost gets reunited with the data ghost of the Doctor. And this was, this was not a fan theory. This was planned by the showrunner and the writer of the episode. Right. And so it is unspoken canon, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> and this was technically, therefore, a two-doctor episode, because we have David Tennant's 10th Doctor, and I forget the name of the actor, but Dr. Moon as the, you know, final Doctor. And so I thought that was cool. It's yeah. another, we've had other characters like this that people have said, oh, this guy has to be the Doctor. He has to be some future incarnation. We had that with hmm. Gaurani back in the uh, uh, Seventh Doctor's time in um, Delta and the Bannermen, where this character is right. so Doctor-like. People said, oh, Gowrani has to be the Doctor. Right. We also had the, <laughs> the Beekeeper. The yeah. Beekeeper. We also yeah. had the Curator, who's played by Tom Baker, is obviously a future incarnation of the Doctor. And then we recently right. had Joe Martin as the Ruth Doctor. Even though she's a past Doctor, she's like another one-off, just-passing-by Doctor. Right, right. Yeah, the actor, by the way, is Colin Salmon, who's a great uh, yeah. British actor and does a bunch mm -hmm. of things. I, I remember watching that at the time, and we, when we discussed this, I maybe brought it up, how I, when I first saw that, I thought it was weird that we had a character named Dr. Moon in an, ep in an episode of Doctor Who, which could be confusing, or, mm -hmm. or I was confused that it, they didn't relate it somehow. So this is obviously how they were relating it internally to the Doctor. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, uh, tangentially, speaking of uh, this conversation, uh, as we record this, there's a YouTube channel called Doctor Who Lockdown. It's an official Doctor Who YouTube channel, and mm. they're producing new content yeah. related yep. to Doctor Who, and there's some really good ones being written and created by, you know, Stephen Moffat, for instance, and uh, the one with Rory mm -hmm. uh, recording a, a video diary for his child back in the 1940s was oh, yeah. awesome that was the best <laughs> oh it was it was really good he's he's rory is describing using the last working cell phone in the world <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the first the, working cell the, phone in the world <laughs> the only working cell phone in the world to record a video yeah. diary describing his 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 life for his his newborn child that amy has just given birth to and right. and we at the end we hear Amy yelling off screen. Are you going to come in here and help me paint the baby's bedroom or not? <laughs> yeah, right. and it was all and written by Stephen by uh, Neil Gaiman. Actually, I think may have written this one. I, uh, it was that been, yeah. Russell T Davies? No, I, no, it was either right. Gaiman or Moffat. Right. So yeah, and and it was played by the actor who who plays Rory and Arthur Darville. Yes. Uh, so it's just they were like, and there's several of them like that. There's one that's a follow up to the girl in the fireplace, and this so several things like that. So 
Um, some are live action filmed, uh, obviously the actors at home. Mm-hmm. Others are animated. So it's very clever and very, I, I, I appreciate very much the effort they're going to, to create Doctors. Well, there's also some, some written material coming out because Russell T. Davies recently released kind of what was his prelim idea of what happened to the Doctor right after the Time War, but right before the episode oh. rose. So like the, mm. of the moment, of course, the moment wasn't the Rose Tyler lookalike uh, interface, but it was actually, you know, the box and everything and kind of describing right. all that. And that was kind of interesting to read, too, because he wrote it as if it was like the last couple of pages of a novel. So it kind of starts like in a half paragraph. And oh, OK. Everything. Do you know where that it, is? Is that that's online somewhere? I th- Yeah, I think oh. that's I think it's on the Doctor Who website, I think. Mm. You know, they've I'll got an official Doctor Who website. Link. But there's yeah. There, yeah. So there's a lot of this kind of material that's coming out that they're because obviously they can't produce new shows right now. They're able to use that to uh, do something with, you know, to put more material out there anyways. Uh, so I'm just writing down to Russell T. Davies moment story so i get that's i just made a note for myself to find that link and put it in the show notes all right uh anything else left to say about this let's get to space whales yes let's talk about the uh, captain there be whales here <laughs> oh my gosh we've got the crossing the streams again so the beast below this is uh our first adventure with amy post the regeneration episode uh we've transitioned now from the 10th doctor to the 11th doctor this is we're now in regular episodes so amy like Martha is off on a new adventure, a one-off. He says at the beginning, you know, this is we're mm-hmm. doing a one, we're doing a one-time adventure with you. I'm taking you on a trip, and and it becomes a really three parts, three episodes that run right into each other, just like again with Martha. So it's a very interesting pattern that they're following, and so it starts in in in, in the TARDIS, Jimmy. Well, I I thought I'd mentioned that it for me one of the significant parallels here is to the episode The End of the World, which is Rose Tyler's first adventure with the Doctor outside of her home environment. So they both meet the Mm -hmm. Doctor in 21st century Earth, and then they go somewhere in the distant future. And there are a lot of parallels between this and what happens to Amy. And I find it interesting to contrast this with The End of the World, because they both get taken to a future that's exotic but also dark. Uh, but I think Rose is, there's more like eye candy in the end of the world with all the weird aliens and, you know, the tree aliens. And I give you the gift of carbon dioxide from my lungs and things. <laughs> <laughs> and Cassandra, the last remaining human who's stretched thin as a trampoline. Right. And there's more eye candy there. But here there's more horror. Mm-hmm. And the end of the world has kind of, it's all driven by we are at this dramatic moment in history, namely when the sun expands, but everything else is kind of incidental. Whereas here we have what's going to be a very interesting political, philosophical puzzle about the good of the community and democracy and things like that. So you have Less eye candy and more plot with more of a philosophical core to it, rather than just a moment of wonder, and also more horror. Also, this episode reminded me of the Seventh Doctor's Paradise Towers, which we've talked Mm -hmm. about, where you have this future arcology. It's a building where everyone lives. It's all self-contained. Everything happens in this building, and it's like run down. And we have kind of the same thing here. 
with Starship UK. Everything happens in this living environment, in this essentially building in space, and it's also run down and dystopian. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's Space Britain in the 29th century. Oh, actually, it's like the the 33rd century. They left in the 29th. Oh, so the, okay. yeah, there's yeah. there's the idea that the Earth was ravaged by solar flares was destroyed, which something actually goes back yeah. to Tom Baker time. This is this is the first time that that Stephen Moffat is flexing his I'm going to pull back all the classic who stuff muscles. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> and because that goes back to, you know, we did um, was it Ark in Space and the oh, couple right. of couple of episodes that follow on from that. Yeah. 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 That's what that is. OK, so uh, so everybody is, has, has uh, picked up and left. They've apparently picked up. Whole, the cities, or they just made the uh, they built the, the they made it look like the like the spaceship looked like buildings or something. It well, it, it's funny because they're they're different buildings, and each building was like a classic city. So you see, like Devon and all these Yorkshire, other yeah, Yorkshire yeah. and all these other, and the Lancashire somewhere down in the bowels. You know, <laughs> some of those being regions rather than cities, but yes, right, region, yeah. right. But it, it's but it, it's interesting the way they did that, where they kind of grouped them out, and we know that we know that the Scots went their own way. Yes. They wanted their yeah. own ship. Yeah. As Amy so, says, they have their own ship. Yes, and Amy is very pleased by that. Uh, so we start with uh, the teaser is these school kids sitting in a classroom getting grades from this, what looks like uh, the classic carnival fortune teller machine. Yeah. You know, you know like, like you saw in the movie Big, which is maybe if you're too young enough, you don't know what that is, but <laughs> go watch the movie. Mm -hmm. So, But it's, just, it's sort of this uh, robotic- Or go to a carnival. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and uh, its head turns from happy to mad, you know, as the as it, the 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 kids, the good kids, get the happy face, and then that the head on top of this this fortune teller type thing turns and has a, ma a a mad face when Timmy gets a zero, and he's not allowed to ride the lift or he'll get sent below because he got such a bad grade, which is a throwback to a lot of these these more actually throwback. It's it's precursor to some of these things we've seen like in Black Mirror, the the uh, Netflix series about the social score and and in reality in China mm -hmm. right now where mm -hmm. their people can get a social score and when their social score is too low they they do not get access to certain public amenities so it's very dystopian and right here we're seeing a an early version of this uh, so it's kind of funny to see how it predicts that I, I thought it was interesting that all of the school kids are very much in like 20th century school yeah. kid yes. clothes so there's like a retro vibe going on in this society. Also, I thought it was interesting that the lift, they don't call it a lift, they call it a Vader, which is clearly right. developed from the American term elevator. And yes. to have that in a British setting in the future was interesting. It, I wonder how that resonated for people who are used to calling them lifts. Right. Also, well. they have advertising going on in the elevator or in the Vader when uh, the boy gets in. And I thought I heard an ad for McClintock's Candy Burgers. Yes. Which <laughs> which sounds very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, because he's not allowed in the lift, something horrible happens. The smiler face goes, you know, it had gone from happy to sad, and then it goes to rage. And yeah. so it gets its rage face on. And there's a creepy prophetic girl in a video doing a, a, a sinister children's nursery rhyme about the beast below. And mm -hmm. he's falling. And then at the at at the bottom of the shaft, the floor drops out and there's this gaping red black void beneath him. And he screams and we're into credits. And I thought, 
What a great, effective, I mean, look at all the elements we have here building up fear. We've got the, mm-hmm. we've got the sinister face. We have his personal failure. He's breaking the rules. We have elevator fall. You know, that's terrifying for yep. anybody. Elevator fall, <laughs> creepy prophetic girl, floor drops out, hellscape below, scream. I mean, what a nice little cold <laughs> open for us. It's very dramatic. <laughs> yes. Father Corey? Oh, I was going back to the retro thing. Um, I mean, the, 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 this whole schoolroom was retro. They had yes. retro, you know, they had leather bags. They had the old wooden desks. They yep. had chalkboards. I mean, it was, it, this was not, you know, 33rd century technology, all of Star Trek. This was like early 20th century right. classroom that you would, yes. you would have seen both in Britain and United States in many places. I like the fact that the Vader, uh, as you get to the Vader, it's it's modeled on the tube. So mm-hmm. there's a, you know, uh, mind your mind the gap <laughs> notice yep. as they get on and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's very, it's interesting. Well, there's lo- there's lots of little, throughout this, you can see lots of things that look like modern London, mo- modern UK, right. where they're recognizable, like speed limit signs and all these other things that are different signs throughout the walls and everything. I mean, this could be a place somewhere in modern London, in theory. Right. Yes, and probably was or Wales. And anyway, so yeah. after after the open, we we come to the the TARDIS, and the Doctor is holding Amy by her ankle as she floats outside the door of the TARDIS in her nightgown. Uh, and this is a what we have is a direct continuation from the previous episode. And uh, Amy, you know, relates in a in a voiceover. Um, voiceover. Thank you. How last night was the night before her wedding, but the Doctor came back and. So off she went, and so she she hasn't told the doctor that she's due to, she's supposed to get married the next day, but she has said, "I need to be back in the morning." So that's still hanging over our heads here as we begin this. And so there's this, <clears throat> this Fan- there's, no, there's a fan. It's essentially a fantasy scene where right. he's holding her by the ankle and she's floating out in space, and her hair hair is billowing because he's extended the oxygen shield. Mm-hmm. And right. this is a fairy tale moment, and that's really it's helping Stephen Moffat establish the fairy tale vibe for his era in Doctor Who. Right, right. That's a that's an excellent point. So they they see Spaceship UK uh, going by, and they decide to go for a look. And the Doctor warns her, you know, right up front. This is a, the number one rule: <laughs> we are observers only. That's the one rule I've always stuck to in all my travels. I never get involved in the affairs of other people or other planets. Uh, unless the kid's crying. <laughs> unless the kid's crying. Yeah. Yes, unless or he's bored. It, unless the kid's crying. <laughs> I, I like how Amy tries to relate to that as she takes this on board cognitively. She says, Oh, we're like a wildlife documentary. So even if we see a wounded little animal, we just have to let it die. And <laughs> right. as she's saying that, she's watching the, uh, Timmy's, the kid who fell. His friend is a little girl, and she, we're watching her weep on the TARDIS monitor. And as Amy is articulating, we've got to let this little animal here die. Suddenly the doctor appears and <laughs> yes. starts talking to the little girl. Yeah, yeah. The, the little girl's Mandy, uh, is, uh, as we find out. Yeah, so the, the, and it was funny. Like, Amy doesn't realize that they've landed inside the, the Spaceship UK. She thinks they're still looking at it from a distance. And, and so then when she sees the doctor on the screen, she's like, wait, wait, how'd you get there? And she just she runs out to see him. <laughs> Uh, there's a, uh, there's an announcement when they, when they show up, it says, welcome to London market. You are being monitored, which is, yeah. you, you know, it, it, the little, in these days, this day and age where 
closed circuit is everywhere. It feels a little like that. Uh, Especially downtown so, London. Yes, yes. Yeah. The doctor is, meanwhile, seen by a man in a hood who has a key around his neck who, who reports to someone that he's seen the doctor, and they need to tell a woman, they, what we are shown, who's sitting in a room full of water glasses on the floor. Yeah, and the, and there's a connection there. So the the guys with the keys, I initially we aren't told what we aren't given a name for them. I referred to them in my notes as the keymaster guys, but we're <laughs> we're later told they're called the winders. Yes, because they have the keys to wind up something, and right. also the uh, the fortune telling machine things are called the smilers, even though they don't smile all the time. Yes. And one of the things the doctor does as he gets out of the TARDIS, and this is only the second episode in airing. I don't know what order they filmed him, but it's the second episode for Matt Smith's doctor. So he's still kind of a little unstable, and he's jumping around being crazy in London Market. And one of the things he does is take a glass of water off the, off the away from someone and put it on the ground and watch it, and nothing happens. And he can't. When Amy asks him why he does this, he says, "I don't know. I forgot. I think of a lot of things. It's kind of hard to keep track." <laughs> and then, so that's significant when we see the woman from a rear angle shot. We only see her back, and she's got dozens of glasses of water sitting on the floor in front of her. So we know there's something really significant about these glasses of water. That's a connection between her and the doctor. Right. She even asks when she's told we've got a sighting, she says, did he do the thing? And right. apparently referring to the glass of water on the ground. Mm -hmm. So she seems to know who the doctor is. And it turns out there's a reason for that. Yep. So the uh, the doctor has some interesting uh, observations concerning the little girl and the people around her. Like, you know, it's a child. She's in distress, but she's she wants to cry, but she won't cry outwardly. Which means that it's a, she's scared to cry, and then the adults who see her in distress aren't going to help her. So they probably know why she's in distress, but yet they're not doing anything about it. And that's why he thinks we that this is a police state <laughs> being monitored. Yeah. It's it was an interesting series of observations, mm -hmm. like sort Sherlock Holmes sort of uh, deductions. Um, so he said the little girl runs off after he tries to talk to her. So he sends Amy to follow her and find out what's going on while he goes and investigates this other thing having to do with the glass of water. So she finds Mandy, who actually noticed Amy following her. I mean, yeah. the, the woman in the nightgown is pretty noticeable. <laughs> and uh, they find a hole in the street under a sign for Magpie Electricals, which is a lot yep. of fun. That's a throwback to Idiot's Lantern. Uh, and so Amy says, oh, I'm going to go look at what's in this tent covering the hole, uh, even though it's forbidden. And the girl's like, you, you know, you're not supposed to do forbidden things. And uh, she, uh, while she's doing this, she starts ruminating about the fact that she was supposed to get married a long time ago tomorrow morning. Yeah. Uh, and then she, well, how pleased she was that Scotland has its own ship because she's Scottish. Well, by the way, of course, Amy real, knows how to pick a lock, an old school uh, padlock <laughs> with a, just a with bobby a hair pin. Yes. A little hair clip. <laughs> and uh, she... Once she gets in the tent, she finds a scorpion tail, essentially a giant, you know, tail of something with a scorpion stinger on it. Kind of like yeah, a tentacle it, also. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, sort of a tentacle thing. Um, it, it attacks her. She avoids it. She comes out and now she's surrounded by the hooded men who shoot a gas in her face to make her pass out. Very Batman 1960s yeah. version. <laughs> yeah, and it's from a ring. Off a ring. 
And you know the, the, these hooded men—they look almost monastic. I mean, if you've, yeah. you've seen monks where they they might have like a cross that hangs from their their neck or something like that, and they're wearing yes. hoods. That's that's really what they look like. Very. They monastic. do look like an order of something. Yeah. What I was interested in was how she's ruminating about her marriage because this is—I mean, we only just learned about this. The I mean, mm-hmm. we only met her the previous episode, and we only learned about her marriage in the last shot of the previous episode where we've just seen her run off with the doctor and then the camera pans across her wedding dress. Right. And then she tells us, so that's like a dramatic stinger to go out on the previous episode on. And then we hear about this in the fairy tale sequence at the beginning of this episode. And now it's coming back. It's becoming more real. She's starting to realize the clash between the impulsive running away and I could have this whole other life that I wasn't planning on and do I really want to get married now? And it's a crucial moment in Amy's character development that sets up the arc that she's going to have both for the rest of the season, but in particular for the next few episodes. Right. Did we did we know who her fiance was at this point? No, because no, when we, we met Rory in the previous episode, he he's like, oh, who is this? As oh, I'm her boyfriend. And as she's stumbling and saying friend at the same time, yeah, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Yeah, this is this is when Rory was still kind of a secondary character. You know, they hadn't quite right. developed him to the point that he eventually becomes. Yes, one of the he most eventually beloved. becomes the. I in my mind, he becomes the primary companion as Amy becomes more like a second doctor, and Rory takes on the function of the everyman. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That that I'm looking forward to getting to to those episodes. So the doctor is down in the bowels of the ship, you know, look, looking around. He's finding he's, he's uh, putting his ear to the wall, and he's confronted by the woman who, who we saw earlier, who's now wearing a mask. And uh, he basically tells her the whole reason for the water glasses was it tells him that the engines are off or not even there, that there are no engines in the ship at all. And because the water would show the vibrations of the engines, and uh, the the woman in the robe says, she she actually as she departs from him, she says she calls herself Liz Ten, and mm-hmm. she says, "Help us, Doctor! You're our only hope." <laughs> and anyone who's a, a science fiction fan knows where that comes from. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was... and that's not that's not the only Star Wars parallel in this. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like yeah. how yeah we have we have yet to get to the garbage masher scene. Yes. Yep. I like how in a science fiction setting, Liz Ten is a perfectly acceptable name, like in Logan's yes. Run, Logan Logan Five or Francis mm-hmm. Six is a right. totally normal science fiction name. So the significance of that does not initially register. So yep. me- meanwhile, Amy wakes up in a in a cubicle. It's a, a voting cubicle, and it identifies her, and uh, you know by name. Uh, you are Amelia Pond, and uh, oh, says uh, she's thirteen hundred and six years old. I, I know. I love how because this is Starship <laughs> UK, so it needs to, for her to vote. It needs to verify she's a UK citizen, and she is. She's yes. just yeah. from the twenty first century. So, <laughs> so Amelia Jessica Pond, we learn is her full name. She's thirteen hundred and six years old, which would put this in the at the end of the thirty third, thirty fourth century. And right. and then she's waiting to see marital status, and she's waiting to see. Unknown. Does she get married? Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Oh, holding us in suspense. I, I like the. There's a bit of an error, like a little on-screen error. the The screen says she's thirteen hundred and eight, while the voice the voice of the the narration says thirteen hundred and six. I just thought that was a little funny. 
I, and when well, I saw that, women first sometimes time I thought, lie about their age. Yes. Yeah. Well, as, when I saw that I, the first time, I thought there was oh a clue, but no, it was just an error. <laughs> well, so, I, I like I like her re- response too. She thought that she got kick out of that. I'm 1300 years old. This is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So a video starts playing that says it will reveal the truth about the starship, and when it's when we have done so, you will have a choice to press two one of two buttons. You can either protest or forget. If 1% of the population of the ship votes to protest, just 1%, it will end everything with consequences for all. And so it doesn't tell us what, the, what that is. And then we, she apparently watches it. We get this like uh, flashing lights in her face. She watches it. She's horrified. She presses the forget button and then sees a message from herself pleading with her to get the doctor off the ship and not to let him investigate. Yeah. The, video, the guy in the video only mentions the two buttons, but right between them, there's a big third button that says record for no yes. apparent reason. This is really kind of bad. Uh, they needed to come up with a better explanation for this, because why would <laughs> right. you have a recording button in a voting booth, especially a voting? I mean, you're not supposed to have anything monitored when you're voting. <laughs> right. And especially why would you have it in a recording booth when its only apparent function is to send yourself a message after you've just forgotten? It yes. seems kind of as at cross purposes, but I like how they play it out dramatically where Amy has like hit the recording button or the forget button without even re- almost realizing it. It's like she's watching the video and then all of a sudden she's hit the forget button. Her hand is on it. And right. she, from her viewpoint, it's like, how did that happen? And then the dramatic, scary, get out of here, find the doctor, do not let him investigate. You've got to get out of here now. This mm. is for real message comes on and it that's really dramatic and the voting here i mean we'll get to the to those to the philosophical aspects of this as we come to the resolution but the idea that voting to forget a horrible truth is really there's a bit of a commentary on society today like this (laughs) we'd rather not deal with uncomfortable truths so we've so we prefer to forget them in various ways and so that'll be interesting as we get to it the girl tells us that uh, when you become an adult at uh, you know, or voting age, it's, you turn at sixteen. You can you can choose to view the video and vote every five years. Yeah. Uh, so and everyone right. always chooses to forget. Yeah. Which is interesting. It would be interesting. One thing I think they, I wish they would have done was had some kind of like you know current votes to to oppose, and you know say like what because they said it had to be one percent of the population. It would have been interesting if there had been a counter somewhere to see how many had done that. They- well, it has to be zero because, remember, in just a minute, we're going to see if you vote to protest, the floor opens up and you're dropped into the belly of the beast, literally. Right. Or the so mouth the, of the beast. Yes. It would, you would be, <laughs> it would always be zero because no one survives well. a protest vote, I suppose. So this is quite a close analog. I mean, this is one of the things that science fiction is classically, you know, has a reputation for doing is social commentary, because mm-hmm. it is an analog for what happens in the real world. Our governments do things that are dark, and mm-hmm. they do it ostensibly in the name of protecting us. And that's what the guy in the video says, If you, but we don't want to think about it. Uh, the the guy in the video says that if you press forget, you'll be able to go on with your life unburdened by the knowledge of what has been done to save you. And mm. that's a very close analog for, yeah, our governments do bad things on this 
dog-eat-dog geopolitical world stage, and we don't want to think about them. We don't want to know what's being done to save us because it's too unpleasant, but we still have a democracy. And so in some sense, we're responsible. And then he concludes with a very dramatic, may God have mercy on our souls. This is analogous to the the courtroom scene in A Few Good Men where... uh, where Jack Nicholson does a, you know, you need me on that wall, you want me on that wall, you know, mm-hmm. and it's 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 essentially a similar speech that he gives there. You don't want to know what I have to do in order to to keep you safe in your beds at night while you're sleeping. We're on that wall doing these things, and, and it's essentially a, a polite or British version of that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, is that when the doctor shows up, uh, she doesn't tell him what you know what what she knows, and uh, he he manipulates the machine he wants to find out what happens if if you choose to protest and in the course of that uh, he he tells her that uh, he's identified as not human that's why the machine doesn't let him vote and amy's a little surprised by this she she doesn't realize not human and she says but you look human and he says no humans look time lord we came first which i think is good <laughs> and then we have the whole uh, there are no more time lords uh left and i never choose to forget that and so for him choosing to forget is a, is a, is fundamentally opposed to to this most important decision he's made recently, at least in his recent incarnations, um, about not forgetting. He, forgetting would be, would be bad in, in that essence. And then there's a line where, as he's just about to trigger the machine to find out its secrets, he says, "Hold tight, we're bringing down the government." And this <laughs> yeah. is something to American ears has a much more dramatic sound than it right. would to uh british ears because yes. in i i was talking a, a few a number of years ago to a um canadian uh, guy i knew and he was saying oh yeah our government's about to fall and to an american that sounds apocalyptic i mean that's like <laughs> your nation is about to dissolve there's going to be right. anarchy in the streets what <laughs> because for Americans, the government is not a particular administration. It's the right, right. whole governing structure that's there, regardless of which party is in power. But in British culture, a government is an administration. So you yep. could you will have all of the all of the bureaucrats keep their jobs, the queen's still on the top, but the government or the administration changes. Right. So, and yep. so it's not nearly as apocalyptic. So when the doctor says we're bringing down the government, he means we're about to change the administration. So when they when they talk about the government, like right now in Canada, they'll talk about the liberal government or the Justin Trudeau government. Yeah, you know, because that's the one that's in power now. If you know, if that changes in a few years when they have their next election, of course they just had one. You know, then it'll be somebody else's government. You know, right. Margaret Thatcher government back in the back in the eighties in England and so on. Right, and the government does have to fall or or to, to to bring to be brought down in order to have a new election. Like they don't have regularly scheduled elections like we do. So the doctor does hit the the protest button. The door slams shut, uh, and he and Amy are trapped inside. Uh, the smiler becomes the scowler. The floor opens up, and the doctor says, "Say we," and Amy says, "Ah," <laughs> which is not we, <laughs> and uh, they're dropped into. Uh, a gross pit of 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 food waste and and such. It's really gross. And uh, shut down all the just... garbage mashers on the detention level. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't even thinking the garbage masher. I was thinking the big teeth. Oh, that the... too. Yeah, the space worm. Yes, mm-hmm. the big teeth also from Empire. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
he realizes that they're actually in uh, the mouth of a beast, and uh, he figures the only way to get out is to tickle the back of the throat of the of the creature uh, with the sonic, and he gets it to vomit them out, which I, I thought was a pretty dangerous uh, prospect because outside the mouth is not is it's not, space, is not the no interior of the ship; it's space. Yeah, but uh, apparently the the uh, it's a closed system, and they get uh, put into an outflow tube, as they say. I, I like how. They play the scene where, because initially they're threatened by the swallow reflex. Yes. They're going to go down to the stomach if they don't do something. Which the doctor wants to see, just not in that circumstance. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And so he triggers reverse peristalsis. They don't use the term on screen, but that's the the reverse. I mean, peristalsis is the reflex that pushes stuff through our digestive system in the normal direction. Reverse peristalsis is what causes us to throw up. And right. so he triggers its reverse peristalsis, and we're in this dark, cavernous environment, and we see this wave coming at them. <laughs> and yeah. as the wave is approaching, they're playing the theme of the 11th, the da-da-da-da, you know, the, the standard, yeah. exciting, <laughs> dramatic theme that's kind of dark and upbeat at the same time. And so we've got our main heroic theme playing. As the wall of vomit is approaching them, and he yells, Geronimo, his catchphrase. It's yeah. so wonderfully absurd. And he says, this isn't going to be big on dignity. Which, yeah. Why Why would no. you face the wave? Turn away from it. Just turn away. The, get it in the back, not in the face. Anyway, once they're in the outflow tube, there is a door, they, and R2's not on the other side, opening up the all the, the doors on the detention yeah. No, level. it's not R2, uh, it's Liz Tan. Yes. But there is a button that they they can press to open the door. But they have to. But it's a forget button, so they have to again agree to forget in order to get out. So all all bases have been covered here. Uh, and then they see the two of the uh, the smilers uh, at the other end of the tunnel for reasons. Yeah, they can't come and do anything to us. And as as soon as he says that, the machines open up and the smilers stand. And apparently they can. <laughs> they're robots of some sort. And this, I thought, was a missed opportunity because immediately Liz Tin shows up and shoots them. Yes. And it's like, you've just established these guys can physically move and menace people. We need to have some more of that. That needs to play out for a while before we get out of the danger. Right. Although we do get a couple more that show up immediately next. And, and they, also, they also show that they can, that they can self-repair because right. as you know, she shoots them and they're sitting there talking, all of a sudden they start moving and she says, oh, they're... They're 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 repairing themselves. We got to get out of here. Yes, uh, and so when they get out, she begins to tell them how she grew up on stories of the Doctor passed down in her family, and she drops different clues, which reveals that she's Queen Elizabeth the Tenth. That's how she is Liz mm-hmm. Ten. Yeah. Um. So a little bit of uh misdirection because uh she's a uh, dark complected. She doesn't look like the Windsors. Let's put it that way. <laughs> in that yeah. sense, I <laughs> the, the, I had a little bit. Of trouble with Liz Ten. Now on the on the rewatch of this episode, I had less trouble, but still yep. there are some moments where. So a lot of what happens makes sense. I mean, she's a monarch who can't trust her government. That's why she's got the glasses of water on the ground. She knows their significance yep. just like the doctor does, and it's a daily reminder that she can't trust the people around her. Also, going out with the mask in public right. makes sense if you're a monarch and you don't want to be recognized. So it makes sense of a lot of stuff. But I had uh, just a little bit of trouble with the idea of the queen as this covert action hero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she has the action hero mentality. I mean, after she reveals herself as Queen Elizabeth X, 
she's like, and she's this very attractive, you know, dynamic looking lady with the red riding hood cape and everything. And Mm -hmm the mask and the blasters and she's this action hero co-secret action hero monarch right yeah and she's i'm the bloody queen basically i rule and (laughs) and i liked the uh, basically i rule line but the rest of it is just a little over the top for me right yeah i mean it's it's again it's more fairy tale than than realism because yeah Yeah. a a, a, any monarch even in this circumstance would be surrounded by courtiers and in various servants and in that sort of thing you would never have this ability to to go out alone like that only um, in a shakespeare play <laughs> right yeah. maybe that's what this is so uh they go back to her quarters and uh they discuss how she's 50 and uh, amy is surprised that she looks so young uh that she's been investigating this weird circumstance for a decade for 10 years and the doctor figures it all out in an afternoon also, in talking about the uh, the creature, because now we know there's this creature, there's this beast below mm-hmm. from the title underneath yep. Starship UK, and it's got those tentacle stinger thingies that are growing up into the ship, and Queen Elizabeth suggests that it's like an infestation, and her subjects right. are being fed to it by members of her own administration. So, unfortunately, this actually goes by a little quicker than it should. They should have a little more dwelling on that about my government is collaborating with an alien invasion. We have this creature invading us or set of creatures invading us, and my ministers are feeding my own subjects to it. Right. They So we have alien collaboration in the midst of an invasion going on. They should have given us a little bit more of, of that because what that does is it's misdirection. from what's really going on. And it's good misdirection. It just goes by too fast. That's true. So in the quarters, the the, the doctor is kind of, he's a little suspicious of the mask. And that that also goes by kind of fast, but it's fine because we'll come back to it. He'll he'll bring it up again. But the the winders show up in her quarters and they reveal that they're half human, half smiler, which is really weird. And they say that she's come, she's to come with them to the tower, the Tower of London, uh, on the highest authority. She says, I-, I am the highest authority. That's right, Mum. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, yeah. <laughs> on her authority, she's ordered it. Well, s- there is a way. dodge, although they don't go into it. It could be like a previous monarch, or there is an authority higher than you that you just don't know about. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Also, for the American audience, going to the tower is, they say it like it's a bad thing. And yes. to an American audience, it was. yeah, we're not that <laughs> familiar with what the Tower was. But the Tower of London was, uh, at various points in its history, a prison where they would keep people they were waiting to execute. Yeah, Catholics but, may be familiar with St. Thomas More's uh, last trip to the Tower. Stay there, yeah. <laughs> and of course, the, the irony of irony of this one is the Tower of London is actually the bottom level of the ship. Right, the dungeon, essentially. So in, in the Tower's dungeon, they're they're told that protesters those who push the protest button and those of no value to society so not just people who are who are going to reveal things but people who are deemed of no value they're fed to the beast i mean that pretty cold here but for some reason it won't eat children even though they keep sending children to it but the, the children apparently turned into some kind of slave labor uh and we see timmy here in this scene yeah and it's interesting that it won't eat children because it has a kind of that itself has a kind of fairy tale vibe 
but it's a mm-hmm. modern fairy tale. This is a fairy tale for 21st century BBC where you can't hurt children. This right. is not real old school fairy tale <laughs> where yes. Hansel and Gretel are in mortal yeah, exactly. danger. There is no problem about killing children. In fact, there are <laughs> lots of fairy tales that are cautionary tales where children die. Which was kind of the point of fairy tales. <laughs> Don't do these bad things because you could die. Yes, that's true. Yeah, don't don't wander off into the uh, into, into the, the forest. forest, or you might meet the witch that'll eat you, cook or, you in a pie, and eat you. Or the big bad wolf, or yeah, all the kinds yeah. of things. So uh, the the meanwhile, the doctor does does the big reveal. This is the the standard uh, moment where the doctor reveals that the creature, the whale, is is the engine for Starship UK, and it's being kept in line through constant torture. This this electrical shock being sent right into the pain centers of its brain, and that's what's Ooh. motivating it to keep going. And they reveal this at the 30-minute mark. We still have yeah. 13 minutes left to go. So this is, a, this is the big reveal at the two-thirds mark, and that mm-hmm. seems a little misproportioned to me. Normally, you'd have the, re- the big reveal a little later in the episode and not so much you know, post-climax or conceptual climax. And I think that so, yeah, some of the criticisms I've seen of this and that even I've made myself is it seems a little rushed. Yeah. And if they had moved the, the reveal later, it would have given them time to unpack a few things a little better in leading up to this. Well, and in what it allowed for was the doctor's rant against all yes. humans. You know, no, no one who is human ha- can speak now right. uh, wrongfully, it turns out. But, you know, it, it allowed to, you know, kind of the, the, the aggressive side of the Matt Smith doctor to come out. And I, I wonder if that was the conscious choice was to show that he's not the bubbly, you know, bounce around clown, but there, there is still that aggressive, angry side to him. And that's mm. how they chose to do, show that. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think Moffat really wanted the, the, the whole idea of the episode was to get us to this scene where we can really bring out the new doctor's new personality quirks, the the various mm-hmm. aspects of it early, this very first episode. Uh, so I agree with you, Jimmy. I think they could have, they should have spent more time unpacking some of the other stuff, but I, 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 I think that's why they did it this way. So I'm, I'm not sure it was yeah. better to do it that way, but it was also weird. we had a reveal of the doctor's teeth, so to speak in the previous episode where after defeating the Atraxi early, Yes. He calls him back to give him a tongue lashing. Right. Yeah. That's true. Uh, so the doctor tells Liz she's not 50. She's more like 300. And it turns out that she's behind all of it. She was there when the ship launched. She was the, 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 uh, the, the monarch at the beginning. A video that she made for herself plays. And she's got a voting console, too, except it, this doesn't say protest and forget. It says uh, abdicate and forget. And so her video reveals to her that she had the impossible choice. Uh, well, she, the world was being destroyed. They couldn't get their ship launched uh, like all the other nations did. And while the children were crying in the streets for fear of dying from the solar flares, the, suddenly this space whale showed up, and it's the last of its kind. Because of course it is. It's a because fairy tale. It, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. They, they always are the last of their kind. And so they trapped it and made it into the engine of their ship for for some reason. And she has this choice where we can free the star whale, which would destroy doom the people 
I'm not sure why. Because, well, if she's it's it, she explains to herself that if if she hits abdicate, she will lose her authority, and the space whale will be free, and the ship will break apart. Right. So apparently, the ship is physically dependent on the whale for its integrity. It's like now they okay. they could have unpacked this a little more, but apparently, the it's not just that they would be adrift without the whale; they would physically break up. Okay. And then the alternative would be to continue to torture the whale in order to save the people. Uh, but then you have to have this police state and this neurosis at the heart of the society about we, we have to pretend we aren't li- you know, living uh, by torturing another creature. And so that's mm. the choice. And the doctor says, well, first the doctor takes Amy to task. You know, you chose to take it upon yourself to save me from my choice of what to do here. And he's so angry at this that he said, that's it. You're done. I'm taking you home after this. Yeah, we should we should unpack a little more here because what happens yeah. is Liz 10 watches the video. She is torn. Amy starts. Now, Amy is in getting to know the doctor, especially in this episode, has learned as a time lord, he's the last of his kind. He's very mm-hmm. old. He's very kind. And he can't right. stand it when children are crying. And uh, and so he'll intervene. He'll break his one rule of never intervene when children are crying. At least that's the way she articulated it earlier in the episode. And she starts thinking about the space whale. It's like, okay, it's very old. It's the last of its kind. It showed up when Earth was about to burn and children were crying. It can't stand children crying either. It intervened. It didn't get captured. It show it showing up during the solar flares was not a miracle. It was volunteering to help. Yeah. And they didn't understand and they've been torturing it ever since. And so what we need to do is stop the torture. And this all goes by and we get this presented to us kind of in backwards fashion. But what we see on screen is she she grabs Liz Ten's hand and says, I'm sorry, I need your hand for a second and slaps the abdicate button. And right. there's a great convulsion as if the as if Starship UK is about to break apart, and then it all settles down. Yeah. And the head winder guy is like, I don't understand what happened. And why is it so smooth now? We're actually moving faster towards our mm-hmm. destination, wherever that is. And Amy says, Well, you stop torturing the pilot. Kinda helps. Right. We should also mention that the doctor was in the process of basically right. turning the whale into brain dead. Yes. He was going to, you know, basically wipe the, the, the whale's brains out, basically, you know, shock him to death almost, so that then the brain would just mindlessly float where they want yeah. him to go. Yeah. He I, thought they had three choices. Uh, let the whale stay in agony, kill everyone on the ship, or murder the whale, basically lobotomize it as painlessly right. as it can, and then I won't be the doctor anymore. Uh, yeah, and notice how he says, I'll have to find a new name because I won't be the doctor anymore, which is an unintentional foreshadowing of the war doctor. Yep. Right. Also, this is why the doctor was going to put Amy off the TARDIS, in essence, because right. he says, look, you, you chose to try to manipulate me by forgetting and then sending yourself the message to don't let me investigate because you knew I would be put in this impossible situation where I'd have to make a horrible choice like this. And you took that on yourself and don't ever do that. And she's like, I made a mistake. I don't even remember it. And he has the great line, but you did it. And that's what counts. Right. Because that's what does count. 
And then she redeems herself by putting all of this together so the doctor doesn't have to lobotomize the whale. And so this is a great illustration of a principle where two protagonists, neither one of the protagonists can solve the problem by themselves. They pull each other over the goal line. Mm-hmm. Right. Kind of like Ender and Bean do at the end of Ender's Shadow. Right. And this is another instance of that dynamic of they're both helping, cooperating, they're resisting each other, but they're, they end up pulling each other over the goal line. And I love it when that happens. It's more satisfying dramatically than the wizard right. waltzes in and snaps his fingers and everything is done. Right. And it's, yeah, it is an interesting solution because Amy is integral to the solution. It's not just yep. the companion as tag along as has mm. often been the case. And it also puts the doctor actually chasing the wrong track where, yeah. you know, he, he isn't the all knowing expert that's going to snap his fingers and fix everything. He actually is going the wrong way, but he doesn't realize it at the time. He's thinking that, well, he's so, he's so caught up in how mad he is at Amy and how everything's going on and he has to fix it. And it's like, no, you don't have to fix it. Here's the solution. And it's right, right. in front of us. And it's right. interesting. They don't spot other potential solutions like, why don't okay either the space whale is sentient or it's not mm. if it's not sentient well m- maybe you don't need to shock its pain center as much as you're doing but this is but if it's not sentient it's the what these are essentially spurs right you know you sh- if it's not sentient you shouldn't in principle i mean you want to say let's only use as much as we need to pain compliance but basically it's spurs and Right. If you don't have a problem riding a horse, you shouldn't have a problem giving the space whale a little kick to say giddy up. If it is sentient, negotiate. <laughs> Talk <know>? to it. <laughs> right. We're, we're sorry for the last 300 years we've been torturing you. Can you help <laughs> us now again? <laughs> right, right, right. So as we end things up, uh, the, the doctor and Amy have a moment where they talk about, you know, how he is, as you mentioned, Jimmy, that he is like the whale, a very old, alone, and has to run to help uh, children in need. By the way, notice the fairy tale theme of this, of, of the rescue uh, back in the 29th century. The last of a dying race, the last space whale comes to rescue the crying children of Earth. I mean, how fairy tale is that? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so as they get back to the TARDIS, they're having this... Um, he he he's basically changed his mind. She's going to continue with him, and uh, he says, uh, n- "Never mind, you know, never mind them. Big day tomorrow." And Amy's like, "What you know about the wedding?" She's kind of thinking he knows about the wedding. He goes, "Well, it's always a big day tomorrow. We got a time machine. I skipped the little ones, yeah. <laughs> which is great." Yeah. She has a question at this point. Have you ever just wanted to like run away because you were scared, or just because you could, or, or you not ready, ready for it? Or, yeah, because <laughs> she's clearly talking about the the wedding. But we have a, this is a great character moment because as she's getting hinky about her wedding and just because you could, because there's this whole other life she could have. Right. Have you ever run away, Doctor? And he says once a long time ago. And he's clearly referring to when he first left Gallifrey. Yep. And yes. there's this great moment of this parallel between the two of them as runaways. And it, I really like that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I like, I like too where she asks, well, what happened? And he just goes, Hello. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? It's going on right now. <laughs> and just as she's about to tell him about the wedding, she hears the phone ringing in the TARDIS, and so they go in and answer. He asks her to answer the phone for him, and it's there's this whole like 
back and forth. There's a little funny repartee. Uh, who is it? It's the prime minister. <laughs> and, and then he, he says, which prime minister? The British one. Which British one? Because, of course, he's known a lot of them. It's Winston Churchill for you. Oh, and uh, Churchill's on the phone, and he says uh, he wants the doctor to come. It's World, you know, it's obviously World War II. And we see a shadow of a Dalek on the wall of his office. It's a tricky situation, Doctor. Potentially very dangerous. And this is a setup for the next episode. Uh, Vic- Victory of the Daleks, I think it is. Yeah. And then our final shot is watching Starship UK sail off. Only now we get to see it from the underside and we can see the space whale. So there was a 50-50 shot, depending on whether Amy and the Doctor landed the TARDIS above or below the starship, that they would have known from the beginning there was a space whale here. (laughs) Right. And as it goes by, we see a crack in time appear on the surface of the starship. Right. The the infamous crack that will be the series... uh... Uh, arc uh, for this season yep. and that's and that's where we end it so any any final notes on this father cory anything left to say i i kind of say it's kind of almost funny to go back to matt smith after david ten after so long of with david ten it's kind of funny to go back yeah back to see the matt smith and it, it's almost like when matt smith first took over as the doctor you know this new character this new doctor you know almost that same kind of feeling so. yeah jimmy I liked it more than I I thought. I mean, I've always kind of, a lot of fans kind of don't like this episode, and I've always liked it more, and watching it this time, I I appreciated it even more, I thought. It reminded me why I liked it. I don't like everything about it. There are things that I just find very implausible. There are some logic problems with it, but and there are things that definitely could be fixed if they had let it breathe a little more. Right. But overall, I mean, there's some really complex psychological things going on in here that I find very intriguing with the politics and Amy's character development and the relationship with the doctor. And once you accept that this is a fairy tale, it really works in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. Mm. Yeah, I agree. All right, so let's wrap things up there. We'll we'll take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Doctor Who, including Greg M., Julia W., Nancy M., Karen M., and Isaac K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. And so that's it from us. What did you think of the beast below? Uh, how do you, how do you feel? Do you, is it one you one you liked, or uh, are you among those who dislike it? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or at the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or you can send us an email to Doctor Who at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the third Doctor story, The Mind of Evil. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, all that pain and misery and loneliness, and it just made it kind. Right. This is going to be fun.